We're in John chapter 4 this morning. We'll get to that eventually, but if you have a Bible, you might turn there. John chapter 4. <clears throat> you know, I grew up going to the Cloudcroft Municipal School System. It was a small rural school system where basically everybody knew everybody and had known everybody for a very long time. Cloudcroft had a population of about a thousand, and when the high school gym was filled during home basketball games, I could look throughout that whole gym and I could name just about every family sitting in the stands. And then the outsiders started coming. The closest town of any size was Alamogordo, New Mexico. 20,000 compared to Cloudcroft's 1,000. And at some point during my high school years, families from Alamogordo started sending their children to Cloudcroft Municipal Schools. They liked the size of the school better. They liked some of the programs better. But those of us who were already there did not like that. Not one little bit. I mean, we had grown up in each other's homes. And these people didn't even live in Cloudcroft. They had not been to the Halloween carnival that was held in the high school gym every single year of our lives. They had not skated in the outdoor skating pond in the middle of the village every winter of our lives. They had not sat on those cold concrete bleachers for a decade or more watching the high school football team lose and lose, and lose. They just hadn't paid their dues. They were strangers. And when they started coming, we wanted nothing to do with them. We turned a cold shoulder to them. We didn't invite them into our cliques. We definitely saw them as inferior to those of us who had grown up in Cloudcroft. And that scenario right there is replayed in countless ways throughout human history. No matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter when you live, there's almost always an outsider. There's almost always people who live outside the boundaries of your group. And the tendency is almost always to turn them away, to not want them in your group, to think of them as somehow inferior to your group. And this was a huge issue in Jesus' day. In ancient Judaism, the outsider were the Romans. The Romans had swept in. They had taken over Jerusalem. They had taken over Judea. They were taking over every place around there. And for the Jews who had lived in Israel for centuries, this was untenable. And so one of the burning questions in ancient Judaism was this. How do the people of God respond to outsiders? And by the time Jesus arrived in the first century, there were really more than one answer to that question. There were four answers to that question. In ancient Judaism, there were four parties, and each one of these parties gave a slightly different answer to that burning question. So one group in ancient Judaism were the zealots. One of the disciples of Jesus was a zealot. And if we could summarize their perspective toward outsiders, it would be this sentence. I will fight you. The zealots saw the outsiders as a threat. And the best way to deal with that threat was through violence, through a show of force. 
the zealots were the people who interpreted their Bibles to say that when the Messiah came, he would lead a military overthrow of those outsiders. It's interesting how you can misinterpret the Bible just as they did when it comes to these outsiders. The second group in ancient Judaism, they were known as the Sadducees. This was one of the groups that was constantly trying to trip up Jesus. And if we could summarize the perspective the Sadducees had toward outsiders, it would be this sentence, I will use you. The Sadducees were actually one of the groups who wanted to get a little bit closer to the Romans because they saw the Romans as a resource. The Romans were a means to an end, the end being more power. We looked at power last Sunday. What the Sadducees wanted was greater power, greater influence, and so the Romans were a resource toward that end. A third group in ancient Judaism were the Pharisees. And if we could summarize the perspective of the Pharisees toward the outsiders, it would be this sentence, I will protect myself from you. The Pharisees operated out of a theology of fear. When they looked at the outsider, all they saw was moral uncleanness. And they were afraid that by contact with the outsider, they too would become morally unclean. And that's why they were so upset with and so critical of Jesus, because Jesus was constantly eating with people like tax collectors. And tax collectors worked for the outsiders, and the outsiders were clean, and therefore Jesus was unclean. And so one of the things that the Pharisees did was to enact a lot of laws that would minimize contact with the outsider. And then a fourth group in ancient Judaism were the Essenes. So Jewish writers like Josephus and Philo tell us about the Essenes. And if we can summarize their perspective in one sentence, it would be, I will withdraw from you. The Essenes felt like the best way to deal with this threat was to create as much geographical distance between themselves and these outsiders. And so what the Essenes did is they fled out into the desert and they created these isolated communities where they could live, live without having any contact at all with the outsider. And of course, what all four of those perspectives had in common was that they treated the outsider as inferior and really as less than human. So the, the zealots looked at the outsider and, and wanted to use violence against them. They really didn't consider their humanity at all. The Sadducees saw the outsider as just a, a resource, just a, a tool to use to get what they wanted in the end. They didn't really consider the humanity of the outsider. When the Pharisees looked at the outsider, the only thing they could see was that moral uncleanness, that moral inferiority. They didn't uphold the worth and the dignity of the outsider. And then the Essenes cared so little about the outsider that they just shut themselves entirely off from contact with the outsider. Now, that burning question and these four perspectives then give us some context then for reflecting on the final topic in our headline series, and it's the topic of immigration, our relationship with people at the borders of our own country. When you look at immigration in our country, there, there are three big phases that it's gone through, and, and tragically, it, it starts essentially with the forced immigration 
of millions of people to become slaves in this country. And then second, in the 19th century, the government shaped immigration policies so that they largely preferenced people from European countries. And if you weren't from a European country, it was exceedingly difficult to get into the United States. And then finally, that all changed in 1965 with the Immigration Act when people from all over the world were given opportunities to come into the United States. So today we have about 34 million immigrants lawfully living and working here in the United States. There's about another million who are living and working in the United States while their cases are pending. And some people in the United States approach immigrants and immigration really from one of the four perspectives that we've walked through this morning. So I will fight you. There are some in our country who see immigrants as a threat, as the enemy, and they're willing to use violence to drive them away. Or I will use you. Some people today, when they think about immigration or immigrants, their primary concern is the usefulness of other people. Can they be used as a resource, a means to some other end? And so the whole conversation around immigrants and immigration is done with that sense of what kind of capacity do they have. Third, I'll protect myself from you. Some people today, when they look at immigrants or they consider immigration, what they see is uh, some kind of moral inferiority. And so they prefer policies that minimize contact with immigrants. And then finally, I will withdraw from you. There are some in our own country who would prefer as, as big a geographical distance between us and them so that we could just not really have any contact with them at all. And of course, just as it did in the first century, these four perspectives, what they do is they treat the other person as inferior. They treat the other person as really as less than human. And all four of those perspectives stand in great contrast to the perspective of Jesus as people who are attempting to follow Jesus in every, every area of our life. It seems to me that we're obligated to embrace Jesus' perspective when it comes to the outsider. And one of the things that Jesus did was he soundly rejected all four of these other perspectives that we walked through this morning. Jesus refused to give in to the pressure, to overthrow the Romans in some kind of forceful way. He did not treat outsiders with violence. Jesus refused to treat anyone as a resource, as a tool, as a means of, of achieving some other end. And Jesus did not maximize the distance between himself and others. Instead, he minimized that distance between himself and others. When Jesus arrived in the first century, he would have been under tremendous pressure to adopt at least one of these four perspectives that were so common in ancient Judaism. But instead, he rejected them all as incompatible with the heart of his own father. And he pioneered a revolutionary new way of approaching the outsider. And one of the places that we see that is in this text in John chapter 4. 
He, Jesus, had to go through Samaria on the way. And around noon, as he approached the village of Sychar, he came to Jacob's well, located on the parcel of ground Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jesus was tired from the long walk in the hot sun and sat wearily beside the well. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus asked her for a drink. He was alone at the time as his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised that a Jew would ask a despised Samaritan for anything. Usually they wouldn't even speak to them. And she remarked about this to Jesus. He replied, if you only knew what a wonderful gift God has for you and who I am, you would ask me for some living water. Now the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was an insider-outsider relationship. The Jews were the insiders, the Samaritans were the outsiders. And some Jews adopted a posture toward those outsiders that was similar to the four that I've already walked through. And so some Jews would treat Samaritans in violent ways. And many Jews would maximize the distance between themselves and the Samaritans. It was quite common for Jews not to travel through Samaria, even if it was the shortest way to get to where they were going. They would take the long way around Samaria so that they wouldn't have to encounter anyone from Samaria. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus is cutting right through Samaria. And on the way, he meets this Samaritan woman, this despised Samaritan woman. And he treats her with respect. And he treats her with love. And he sees her as worthy of the wonderful gift of God. When the disciples come back a little bit later from buying their groceries, they're shocked to find Jesus interacting with her in this way. And, and the woman herself is surprised to find Jesus, a Jew, interacting with her, a Samaritan, in this way, because for most of her life, she has been outcast by religious people. But Jesus refuses to see her as anything other than a human being made in the image of God, beloved by God, worthy of the wonderful gifts of God. And of course, we see the same posture at the cross. At the cross, Jesus is being murdered by insiders and by outsiders. And at the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. It's at the cross where there's this outsider, this Roman centurion, and he's so impacted by the death of Jesus that he cries out, surely this is the Son of God. And if we could summarize Jesus' perspective, I think it would be this sentence. I will die for you. Jesus came to give all that he had to all of us, to pour himself out in love for all of humanity. I will die for you. And it's that way, seen in John 4, seen at the cross, seen in countless other circumstances, it's that way that begins to make clear at least something surrounding this conversation about immigration. It becomes really clear that we should not use words or labels for immigrants that describe them in 
inferior ways or in inhuman ways. And that is exceedingly common these days, especially on social media. But it is incompatible with the way of Jesus. It means that we should be very thoughtful about what we believe and say about immigrants. There are so many stereotypes going around these days about immigrants, so many myths about immigrants. And when we latch onto those and perpetuate them, it's incompatible with the way of Jesus. And it means that we should not abide by the mistreatment of the most vulnerable people at our borders. The fact that officials took 5,400 children from families at the southern border should bother us. That is not compatible with the way of Jesus. Now, this doesn't answer all the questions that go around in our minds about immigration, but it is a good starting point. And too many times when it comes to this issue, our starting point is somewhere around one of those four other perspectives that I've walked through this morning. But because we're the people who are trying to follow Jesus in every area of our life, we've got to allow the way of Jesus to be the starting point in this conversation, in any conversation, in all the things that we've looked at in the headline series. Because it is the way of Jesus that humanizes this issue. You know, if you, if you come, if you just step right out those doors on Wednesday nights here at Highland, into our Friends Speak program, you'll run into some families from Venezuela. Some of them had professional positions in Venezuela, but they were forced to flee from their homes, their own country, because of dire political and economic situations. And that right there reflected in our own building on Wednesday nights is representative of a major change that's happening in immigration right now. There are more and more children showing up. There are more and more families with children showing up. And they're coming from places like Central America and South America, where there are civil wars and drug wars and dire political and economic conditions that are making it terribly dangerous for people to even live. You can talk to some of those people right out there in our foyer on Wednesday nights. You can talk to some of those people right back here in some of these classrooms on Tuesday and Thursday nights. Hope Works is working with about 200 immigrants from 40 different countries. And on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, many of them gather in these classrooms back here. They're part of a uh, ESL, GED type of program. In fact, just a, a few weeks ago, they were gathering together to celebrate some of the accomplishments that they've enjoyed together here in our building. It's, it's the way of Jesus that humanizes this issue. It's the way of Jesus that helps us to see these other perspectives are just not compatible with the heart of our Father. It's the way of Jesus that's fueling what we're trying to do in this building on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and, and Thursdays. And it's the way of Jesus that has really got to be the starting point in this conversation and in every conversation that we are a part of. So I want to challenge you this week, as, as you get up from here, as you go to class, and then as you walk out of this building into a brand new week, let the way of Jesus 
be your guide. Let the way of Jesus be the beginning point with every single person you interact with, with every single situation or issue that you have to deal with. Let's be a church that prioritizes the way of Jesus. Let's stand. Let's sing together. All who are thirsty, all who are 